appreciate you reading the scriptures for us. I don't know if any of you have ever felt like God's word speaks directly to you, but as Pastor Jeremy was reading the Proverbs this morning, I knew God had a word for me. Maybe you caught it here, but at the end of this proverb, as God is talking about how we should care for our sheep, be diligent, um, because you know, these, these events in life can bring uncertainty, but God will take care of us. Here's what Scripture says. It says, the grass is gone, new growth appears, the vegetation of the mountain is gathered, the lambs will provide your clothing, and the goats, the price of your field. Then there will be enough goat's milk for your food, for the food of your household, and the maintenance of your girls. I'm like, whew, God has got this thing covered. They are expensive. Even God knows girls are expensive. It's like, how do you keep up with three girls and a wife? It'll spend you into the poorhouse. Even God can overcome that cost. Um, but it is a kind thing to know that the Lord has our needs covered, and one of the ways he covers our needs is by our own diligence and hard work and wisdom and saving, even girls. We're in Matthew chapter 24. As we're considering this text, let me, let me just... Um, Remind you of the broader context because we're jumping into the middle of an illustration where Jesus is beginning to go to application, right? He's already given a theology of the return of the Son of God. And so to, to back up and kind of give you that theological framework is helpful. If you go back to, to the beginning in, in verse 4, he's answering the question about when the end will come. And he gives it as a series of sequence events. I think we can see it kind of as three, three kind of major points in his own sermon, and the first point is, there's kind of a prelude of the beginning of birth pains. This is that three-and-a-half-year window leading up to the center marker of the tribulation period, which when that happens, verse 15 says, it's, there's going to be this moment of spiritual upheaval in Israel called the abomination of desolation, when the Jewish people will be, um, become victims of the Antichrist persecution uh, Jesus warns them, when you see this moment in the temple precincts, run for the hills. Literally, get out of Jerusalem. And if you follow Jesus' sermon then in verses 15, really through the return of the Son of Man that begins, he begins speaking of in verses 26 through 28, there's this heightened sense of prosecution of the Jews by the Antichrist. And that would be that last three and a half years of that tribulation period that, that in the book of Revelation would be verses, or excuse me, chapters 12 through uh, about chapter 19. And that c concludes with the return of the Son of Man. Jesus coming back in fulfillment of some of these Old Testament prophecies where God tells us that his appointed Messiah is going to return uh, or come to earth and, and going to reign. Um, Isaiah has this kind of picture of the return of the Son of Man that's it's terrifying. It says he goes to war against the nations. Now the point is those nations that have, for all of Israel's history, stood against God's people, stood against God's program, and, and come against Israel, Jesus is the prophesied Messiah, will come back and go to war for his people. We now look at that and we recognize it's broader than simply Israel who go to war for all of his people. And he's redeemed from all of this world. The Old Testament describes him as coming back physically. His feet will touch the Mount of Olives. It will be on the east side of the temple. 
The Mount of Olives will split in two, the trumpet will sound, and Jesus will go to war against the enemy, against Satan, against the Antichrist, and all of those who oppose him. You might have heard of the Battle of Armageddon. That is that moment when Jesus comes back, and he subdues the nations. Jesus then warns, if you're with me in chapter 24, look down into verse 36. Concerning the day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor even the Son of Man. Jesus himself as the Son of Man, the angels in heaven, they don't know. Which tells us it's not revealed in all of Scripture or anywhere in nature when this is going to come. And all those false prophets and prognosticators who try to predict when the coming of the Lord is need to read their Bibles. We don't know. This is by God's design. And so Jesus warns them that when he comes back, there is this watershed moment for all of humanity. Those who stand with God and those who stand against him will be divided, will be judged, will be rewarded, will be evaluated, will be blessed or cursed. Look at the end of that discussion, verse 44. Therefore, you, speaking to the apostles, must be ready. Okay, so I'm supposed to be ready. What does that look like? How do you get ready? I mean, for the last 2,000 years, what did that look like? If he didn't come back, isn't this kind of just like a fool's errand? Verse 45, he begins explaining what it means to be ready. And he asks the rhetorical question, like any good preacher, he's introducing his big idea with a good question. So what does it mean to get ready? Except in this case, rather than being ready, he starts to define what it means to be ready with a question. He says, who then is faithful and wise servant whom his master has set? And he begins describing two people. So what does wisdom and, excuse me, what does readiness look like? He describes it as being both wise and faithful as we await the expectation of the Lord's return. This is one of those moments in which Jesus is preparing his disciples for what they didn't know was coming. You know, when Jesus first comes and introduces himself to the apostles and begins his ministry, there's a clear indication that they thought he was about ready to do his kingdom thing. He was about ready to set himself up as king. And so you'll see that throughout the beginning part of the narratives of Christ, where the Jewish people and the disciples are ready for him to like take power. You really see this clearly in the feeding of the 5,000. They're ready to appoint him king. And that's where Jesus gets away. He escapes not the enemies, but the insurrectionists who want to appoint him king over Israel then. It's not his timing. But that's what they don't understand. When they look at the Old Testament prophecies, they are overwhelming, overwhelmingly victorious, kingly prophecies. Not suffering, dying on the cross type of prophecies. And so they, they are ready for Jesus to come and be king. Now imagine what's going on in their world. He is going to be king. And we're with him. We'll be his generals. He says in chapter 19, you will reign with me in my kingdom. Not only are they generals, they are going to be his co-rulers. And then all of a sudden, he starts talking about dying. Not only dying, now he's talking about delaying. 
So all of a sudden, their victorious king general, who is going to crush the enemies, who's going to free them from Rome, is like, hey, boys, I'm out of here. Best of luck to you. I don't know when I'm going to be back. Until then, do good. Can you imagine how that rocks their expectation and leaves them struggling theologically, emotionally, spiritually, in terms of faith, in terms of what they're doing? I mean, their whole life plan just gets shattered in the course of a few months as Jesus goes from, in their minds, being conquering king to being absentee spiritual leader. I don't know, have you ever felt lost before? I remember when I was 10 years old, I got abandoned. You might think I'm being overly dramatic. It's one of those moments in life where, like, you feel lost. So I was at this 10-year-old birthday party, and, and the, the mom had picked us up, and they lived like a half hour away from where I lived. And this is, by the way, before cell phones. So some of you who are laughing at me, you need to remember, well, remember, you need to imagine what it's like without this, like, instant help in your hand. We're at a restaurant, and, you know, of course, the mom is doing all this party stuff, and I started to feel sick. And so I told one of the moms, I'm like, hey, I'm not feeling well. I'm going to go to the bathroom real quick. When I got back out of the bathroom, they're all gone. Like, they're not there. I've got no money. I'm, not, I'm like 10. I don't have a wallet with, like, credit cards in it or anything. I don't have any money. So I've got to go beg them for quarters to go to the, like, to go to the payphone. You guys don't even know what a payphone is. I'm in a different town. I don't know my friend's home number. So I've got to call my home and hope my mom is home from work so I can get a hold of her to get a hold of them to come back and pick me up. I was at that restaurant by myself for like an hour in a town and a place I don't know, just hoping that the chain of communication could get someone to rescue me. Like as a 10-year-old, you just feel not only helpless, but there's a sense of just like, so what do you do? It's 5 o'clock. Starting to get dark out, and you're 10, and you're helpless to fix it. How much worse for these men who follow Jesus and they start to understand he's going to die? He's going to be gone, and he doesn't know when he's coming back. What do you do? I think we have the same struggle, but it's different. We live and work in a reality in which we never had Jesus physically. But we still struggle with what does it look like to be ready? It wouldn't surprise me that you could go months, maybe even years, without genuinely feeling the eagerness of Christ's return. That you might go months of working spiritually to devote yourself to the cause of Christ without ever considering how his return is meant to energize you. Or maybe in those moments of just hard discouragement where relationships have hurt you and you must do right and you feel like quitting and you don't even consider that Jesus is coming is meant to strengthen you 
to keep on living for him, not quit. Or maybe perhaps in moments of just heart-rending discouragement where you look at yourself and you're angry and hurt and discouraged because of yourself. And you think, how many more times am I going to mess up? That one of the ways you tell yourself, this is part of readiness and get back up and keep serving Jesus is knowing he's coming. If you're discouraged, if you're distracted, if you're unmotivated, if you're unholy, if you're not telling your friends and family about Christ, this passage is for you. What does it mean to be faithful and wise? If we just start with those words, the idea of faithful has the idea of reliability, has the idea of dependent, or, or, or someone who is dependable, excuse me. The idea of someone who is who's so regular and, and trustworthy that they are faithful, and their, their master can safely put his confidence in, in that person because they know they will come through. Not meaning to embarrass anyone, but it was, it was interesting talking through our scripture reading this week, and the planned reader is, is Caleb, who's in charge of it, says, oh, we don't need to worry about it. It's John. You know why he says that? Because he knows John is faithful. He's just this diligent, hardworking, resolute man who's going to do his job. That's what this text is talking about when it comes to spiritual activity. The type of servant where the master says, I don't need to worry because my servant will worry for me. Take care of it. It's got it covered. He's dependable. Now, wisdom here is not the normal Greek word for wisdom, Sophia. It's a word that speaks to mental acuity. Someone who sees the, the, the work in front of him and sees the problems and the complexities and navigates it with the best possible answers for the complexity and the burdens in front of him. It'd be someone who makes wise financial decisions so that the master's money is cared for, who sees the needs of his fellow servants and the, the master's household and makes sure that it is cared for in a way that takes the best use of resources and cares for his household in the way the master would want him to. That's what wisdom is. This is the, the example Christ gives for readiness, and he gives then two illustrations of what it looks like. There is a, a wise, faithful servant, and there is a, if you look down in the text, look in verse 47, or excuse me, 48, but if that wicked servant, so the contrast isn't between wise and faithful and lazy and ignorant. It's actually a moral issue, isn't it? There's wise and faithful, on the other side there's wicked. Sometimes, you know, when we feel maybe a little lazy and tired, it's like, oh, man, I'm just going to do nothing. We don't think of it as a moral choice. And, and, and so I think we got to see there's more going on here than just diligence in the Christian life. It's actually faithlessness or wickedness is the wrong response to the return of Christ. So looking at these illustrations, then, let's, let's just kind of pull, pull apart the illustration, and then we'll get to the um, theological application at the end. So this master sets this servant over his household to give him, or excuse me, give them their food. So setting him over the household is not like just the structures. Particularly, what does Jesus focus on? 
He put him over the household to feed them. Right? The, the household is his other servants. So this person is in a position of leadership to care for the other servants, to give them their food when they're needing food. I suppose you could see that going a couple different ways. He overfeeds them or underfeeds them. Well, in this case, the wise, faithful servant is put over all of the master's house to care for them in their proper time. Verse 46, blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing, caring for his master's people. Now, if we can just stop for a moment, oftentimes, I think we can measure Christian faithfulness, Christian wisdom, by the management of our life. In other words, I say, what does it look like to be a good Christian? You'd be like, not doing bad stuff, reading my Bible and praying, and going to church on a regular basis. That is a good answer and a really bad answer if that's all you get. Because, in fact, Jesus describes faithfulness in this text primarily in a devotion to his people. Now, that is not out of context, in fact. If you jump over to chapter 25, if you, if you look um, in verse 34 or so, the king is blessing and rewarding those who he has come and found diligent. Verse 35, for I was hungry and you gave me food. And he continues on this type of discussion. I was naked, verse 36, and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. Verse 37, the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you in this condition? Then look at the verse 40 when he gives this answer. The king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. So I'm going I'm to hit a little bit of a hobby horse before I get back to my text. I think one of the ways in which we have just turned Jesus' words on their head in the American church is we've made church about how you feel, how much you enjoy it, how much you enjoy the music, how much um, it pleases you. In fact, you'll find people that will kick themselves out of a church because the pastor annoyed them, bothered them, preached too long, preached too short, didn't say things that comforted them, didn't feel somehow insightful in some special way, and they're out. Listen, your commitment to Crossway Baptist Church is not to an organization. It is not to my preaching. <laughs> I guess we could have figured that one out already. It's not to me. It's not to the other pastors. It's to the people that God has bonded you with in this church. And, and, and that's why I use the word Crossway Baptist Church because that's like an organizational word we use. But when you think of the church, even when we say things like going to church, we can, we can begin to substitute what God thinks with what we're kind of picturing in our mind. And it can make us very loyal to the wrong things and unaware of our lack of loyalty to the right things. You look around this room. I want you to consider what the Apostle Paul says in Acts 20 as he challenges these pastors to care for the flock of God, whom he purchased with his own blood. When you look around this room and you think of how you manage your faithfulness and wisdom, 
or excuse me, how you manage life with faithfulness and wisdom, you should consider the fact that when Jesus Christ died for these people, he has set a price tag of value and preciousness on them that outstrips any possession you have. You should love God's people. And if it's like Christ, so much so that you would give your life for them. That's the type of faithfulness Jesus describes in chapter 24 and 25 is a faithfulness to the people who Jesus Christ purchased for his own possession with a price tag of death laid down for them to buy them back. If that is what energizes you, the, 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 the supreme love of the Savior and then you recognize what he's done as you join yourself to a body of people as he says, here, servant, take care of them for me. And puts them in your hands. I mean, have you ever had any of those types of possessions? Someone's, you know, like, hey, can I look at that? Yeah, just be very, very, oh, you're, you're supposed to have care. They put it in your hand and you care for it by not dropping it by not hurting it, by not damaging it. Consider what Christ is describing as the picture here with his servant. He entrusts to him his people. To care for them until I come again. He says, blessed is the servant who has done this when his master returns. Continue on, then we have the illustration of the wicked servant. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour when he does not know and will cut him in pieces. Literally, the Greek is cut him in two. Lop his head off, cut him in half, something along those lines. He will cut him in pieces. Why? Because he wasn't obedient. He was a wicked servant. And he'll, be, he'll put him with the hypocrites. Now, that may not sound like really bad. But go back to chapter 23. Do you guys remember all the woes? <laughs> Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites. This is not just like, oh, those Christians who don't live up to the holiness that Christ has called them to, and there's maybe a little bit of fakeness in their life where they don't just reveal all their bad stuff. A hypocrite in Jesus' preaching is, it seems to be, significantly and almost always categorized as the person going to hell who thinks they're good. It, it's not just merely for the Christian who doesn't blab to you all their sin and, and doesn't share with you how miserable they are as a human being. I don't think that's actually what a godly person does either. But sometimes we make the idea of hypocrisy very shallow compared to what Scripture is. Scripture indicates that these people, especially in Israel, believe in their own righteousness rather than in the righteousness of Christ. They believe that God is lucky to have them on his team as opposed to someone who maybe is less than forthright about their behavior. 
So this illustration of wickedness, not only do they uh, get this judgment, if we back up a little bit, it says the wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed. Now, now, this significantly helps us on the difference and the contrast, I think, because this response here indicates a faithlessness. That is, he looks at what Jesus has said about, I will return a time you don't expect. You need to be ready. This servant's like, ah, he's not coming back anytime soon. I have some time. I have a little bit of leash where I can run free and do my own thing. Let me take you to Second Peter. I'm going to hit a couple other implications from this text as well here, beyond just what I'm working on right now. So keep your finger here just for a moment. All of 2 Peter 3 is, is incredibly encouraging on these same lines of thinking. In 2 Peter 3, in verse 2 he says, You should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Okay, so he is talking about New Testament prophetic work here. The, the words of our Lord Jesus, the message of the apostles... Verse 3 then, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? If you continue reading on, um, there, there's an ignorance that causes this boldness. Verse 8, don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Now his point is, I think, to equip the church to recognize the coming of Jesus will be soon, but make sure you're using his watch, not yours. Right, how long has it been by this calculation, if we're just like literally flipping it on its head with Peter? How long has it been since Jesus left? Two days? Not long. And, and our sense, we think 2,000 years, and it's like, that's forever. But, and we just have to recognize, God is not at all thinking about time the way we think about time. So when he says, I'm coming back quickly, I'm coming back soon, there is a faith proposition that he will do this. He is coming back. And he is coming back soon. I just need to make sure that I don't try to undermine his promise or, or somehow call his promise invalid because it's not on my expectations that it's happening. All right? Continue on then. The Lord is not slow, verse 9, to fulfill his promise as some counsel in us, but is patient. So why isn't he working faster? I mean, maybe two days is a long time for you, and you're like, man, come on, let's get this thing done. Why is God not coming now? Oh, this is sweet grace. Please catch this. The Lord is not slow, but is patient, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. That sounds just like Jesus. Right? That's exactly what he just said in the lead-up to the text we're looking at this morning. Why has Jesus not come back yet? The character of God is patience. And he is doing this to save you. If Jesus Christ would have come back in 1850, how many of you would get to heaven? Think about this. If the Lord had come back when you were 20 years old, 
many of you would go to hell. Right? If you know Jesus as your Lord, if he is your king, if he is your redeemer who's rescued you from sin, the singular reason you're saved is the character of God, particularly in this text, is patience. Some of you look down the pews and you see your children and you know how much patience you hope he has. Right? Like we think of our little loved ones over there. Don't you hope he has a little more patience? At the same time, you know you should want him to come and you're kind of torn. You're like, Jesus, come quickly, but not too quickly. She needs to get saved. Aren't you there with me? What is, what is your great hope here but the character of your Savior who is too good to come too soon that he would lose any of his called ones? He is too good and so patient. He's patient with you. He's patient with you. That's why you're saved today. Like if you haven't stopped in the last like 30 seconds and said, God, thank you for your patience, you need to understand that you should not wait to the end of the sermon to worship, confess, or pray. Don't wait, because you'll forget. That's how I have to be with good ideas. Like, ooh, write that down, because the good ideas come like once every two years. <laughs> I cannot forget that bad boy. Right? Like, like you got to remember these things. But when, the, when you're seeing God's patience is the reason you're saved, and it's only been two days for him, I have no idea when Jesus is coming, but it will be soon. And I hope it's not before you work and labor for him. I hope it's not before he gives a few more of his children into the harvest for his laborers to see the goodness of the Savior again. Look down in verse 11 for me. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, he's talking about this world, this earth, what sort of people ought you to be? What sort of people should you be? holiness, godliness, as we wait for the hastening of the coming day of God. Verse 14, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found in him without a spot or blemish and at peace. Verse 18, grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord. What does the Lord want you to do while you wait? If you're a faithful and wise servant, what are you doing? You look at the characteristics here. I'm growing in godliness. I'm growing in holiness. I'm eagerly waiting for the coming day of the Lord that is coming soon. I want to be found in him, in Christ, with his righteousness, but I want to be someone who's living up to what he has called me to be as a saint. I need to grow in grace. You do not have all the grace that God can give you. Are you growing in it? I mean, there's saving grace. That is the least amount of grace a Christian gets. Are you growing in grace as you get to know your Savior, as you live for him, as you discipline yourself for him? Are you growing in the supply of grace he gives you? You know, weightlifters, when they're really trying to push themselves, ask for a spotter especially when the weight is a little bit dangerous. 
You know, so you can imagine this man on, on, on the bench as he's trying to lift a couple hundred pounds over his chest, where if he drops the bar, it'll crush his chest or face or neck. Right? Like, but he wants to push himself to his max, and he asks for someone to get behind him and to spot him so the bar doesn't crush him if he drops it. And if it's a little too weak, what does the spotter do? If he's a little too weak, what does the spotter give him? A little bit of grace. Some of you are, you're sitting there and you're lifting a wiffle ball bat. And you're like, oh man, look what I'm doing for Jesus. You don't need any grace. How do you grow in grace? You got to put some spiritual weight on that thing. You got you to work hard for the Lord, where you're sitting there saying, I do not have enough in me. I cannot do this. I cannot be patient enough. I cannot have the words to get this person to see how much Christ is doing for them. I cannot do this. I need help. Please help me. And God's grace helps. Some of you have eyes only to see what you can do. Not what grace is, God's grace can do through you when you live for him. So if you are not asking for God's grace to help you through your day and through your week, you're probably not living as a faithful servant. Because either you are not close to him or you are doing very little for him that needs his help. As we look back in Matthew 24, Peter was listening to the sermon of Jesus, wasn't he? And you can hear the echoes of the Olivet Discourse in 2 Peter. This wicked servant is faithless because he thinks the Lord has delayed, so much so that he can play and party. Look at what he does, though. How wicked is this man? Verse 49, he begins to beat his fellow servants, and he eats and drinks with drunkards. He takes advantage of the supply of the household, the people and the stuff, for his own creaturely benefit. He looks at God's people as there for his pleasure. He looks at God's stuff as created for his pleasure, and he leverages the here and now against eternity rather than the other way around. Right? Jesus says, take the stuff of this life and invest it into eternity. This servant does the wicked reverse. He takes God's eternal people and leverages them for his own pleasure. And go back to just the American church. Please, I, I do not think of anyone particularly in here needing to hear this, but we probably all do because we live in these American waters. If people at church offend you and you leave, you're not a servant of Christ, you're a servant of yourself. Like, look around the room, tell me which one of us isn't a sinner. <laughs> all of us. We're all sinners. Did you think we wouldn't sin against you? Like, you got like a, a, a force field around you? Or are you just not going to be present so we never actually get a chance to sin against you? Like, which, how is this working in your imagination? I can tell you, and not with any joy, but with sadness in my heart, the person I hurt the most is my precious wife. And it's not because I don't like her. 
It's because she lives with me and she can't get away. How much more if God calls us to be faithful and wise servants and then says, serve my household, and we're serving and working with them, that they or we will sin against each other. But we've gotten, we've bought into this thing of like consumer and customer service. Right? Like, you know, the guys at Walmart are paid to be nice to you. Like, they literally pay a greeter to act like he's happy to see you. And we come into the church and we expect customer service. Listen, like, I'm going to shamelessly say this here. We expect you to work harder than any Walmart worker works, and we're not going to pay you. Right? Like, we are paying you nothing, but our Lord will. And he will pay you better than the richest hedge fund manager ever. Do you believe that? Why would you expect him to call you to a life of pleasing you and then pay you like that? If there's that reward, it's because the road is hard. The work is costly. And he will shamelessly call you to die to yourself. And we should not be sitting there saying, "Ah, that's a little steep cost. He died for you. And he says, come and be like me. Not come and like me. Right? Like we are called to be like him. He's our example. He died for these people. And he might ask you to die for them too. He'll certainly ask you to die to ways that please you for their sake. This is the call of the master to care for his people. A wicked servant says, I don't think he's coming back soon. These people can offer some benefits to me. They make me feel good. They are, they are going to make me happy. They are, in whatever way, somehow serving me. I Honestly, pastors are the worst at this. It is easy to enjoy people listening to you. You literally pay me to do this. And pastors can lose sight of the call of Christ. Every leader is called to be a servant. The word here, doulos, means slave. Let me just speak to the leaders, not only of this church, but of homes. Sometimes the least slavish person in the home or in the church is its leaders. Pastors, we are called first to be slaves to our Savior. The people who sacrifice deeply for the church, who lead it by example, should be its shepherds. In homes, often it seems like the wife is the more devout, the one who walks closer to Christ, the one who gets the family to the church, wrong with us men that we would abdicate our leadership in the home that our kids would look at our wives and see more passion for the savior than they see from the men listen if it's a feminine or womanly for you to love your savior you have grossly misunderstood masculinity 
do you believe God will honor servant leadership or do you think your family will take advantage of you, men? Do you think God gave you your children for you? Are they your servants? Ways we get this wrong is we are more excited about our children's peewee football game than we are about Jesus and them reading their Bibles. We are more diligent to make sure that they brush their teeth and they pray. We care more about whether there's room, their room is clean than whether they're kind like Jesus would be to a sibling who's obnoxious. We example selfishness and we wonder why our kids fight. Do your children see you praying to your Savior? Do they hear you get excited about eternal things more than you will this afternoon watching grown men throw around a piece of leather? Uh, I, I love football. The problem is that I love football too much. The problem in many of our homes is we love Jesus too little. Like if God has given me the capacity to act like a child while watching grown men do childish things and find deep joy in doing this with my family, how much better if God has given me those capacities that I could turn them to his son, that my children would be excited to come to be with God's people, that my children could see in me the leadership that says, this is so good. What, the game? No, not the game. Jesus. Right? Like that type of leadership is exactly the faithful and wise servant leader. I just want to spend just a moment on rewards and call you again to that idea of faith. Okay, so Jesus here says two things, negatively, positively. So here's a couple just like thinking through the, the major points Jesus is coming again, right? You with me on this? He's coming again. He has entrusted to his people massive responsibility. And then he gives incredible accountability. So think about this. So he's coming again. He's going to check your work, and he's going to reward or punish you, right? Like that's fairly simply seen from the illustration so far, isn't it? What does the reward look like? Come back to verse 46. Blessed, blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him, that faithful servant, over all his possessions. Let me just take you to Revelation. There's two texts here, and these are the last ones we'll go to outside of Matthew. Revelation. I'm taking chapter 5 and then chapter 20. So in our timeline right now, we have that tribulation ended by the return of the Son of Man. Then he sets up his kingdom. This is called the millennial kingdom in chapter 20. In chapter 5, here's what it says. There's this worship happening in heaven by these 24 elders. A little bit of debate about who the elders are. Maybe churchmen, maybe angels, we're not certain. Verse 9, they sang a new song. Saying, worthy, speaking of Christ, the Lamb is worthy to take up the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God 
from every tribe and language and people and nation. Man, that's such a good verse for missions. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall, what? Reign, where? On earth. This is you and me. This is, this is the faithful servant of Matthew 24 when the master comes back and he finds faithful servants laboring in their homes, laboring among God's people, loving and living by faith. God rewards them, not with some cheap trinkets, not with a few dollar bills that are nothing more than cotton paper, but with real honor that they might reign with him in his kingdom forever. Come with me to chapter 20. At the end of that horrible tribulation, verse 3, and they threw him, that's Satan, the Antichrist, the devil, threw him into the pit, shut it, and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So there's a thousand years in which Satan and all satanic angels are sealed away. The thousand years, it'll be unsealed. Look with me in verse 4 then. I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority of the judge was committed. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, nor had received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. So the dead unsaved are still in the ground. The dead saved are raised. What are they doing with Christ? They came to life and, verse 4, reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Look at verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in that first resurrection. Over such, the second death, that would be eternal hell and destruction, has no power. They will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him a thousand years. Talk about a reward. Jesus says, I'm going to set up this kingdom, and it's going to be glorious. It's going to fill the earth with the knowledge of God. And those who are faithful and believers in the Son of God will come and be co-regents, will be reigning with me as part of my government, managing this world for the glory of God. Now, I know I would rather be in the house of God than a king on this earth who never gets there. I'd rather be a janitor, I'd rather clean toilets, and be in Jesus' house than be a king on this earth, wouldn't you? But he's not calling us to be janitors. He's calling us to reign with him. He's calling us to a position of glory, and it's commensurate, it's, it's a response to your faithfulness today. So here's the challenge of the text. You are faithful when you have faith in his return and his reward. We have this song, and it is a good song. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. The faithless person says, I want it to be worth it now. The faith-filled person says, it will be worth it all when we see him. The wicked person 
is caught unaware because Jesus comes unexpectedly. When he's cast with the hypocrites, where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth, the point is that those who proclaim to be believers but live for themselves and use the church for their own satisfaction are, in fact, not even Christians. He's warning the disciples about this. So if, if, if you are trying to get from God's people just stuff for this life for yourself and it makes you feel good, you probably don't have Jesus yet. Now, I do think one of the sweet joys is we love church. And I mean that. We love the people. On any given night in this church, you will find church people with church people. In fact, Pastor Jeremy had a hard time telling you all to be quiet this morning because you like each other. And when we're done this morning, at some point, someone will probably have to turn off the lights to get you to know you need to leave. So he's not saying it's wrong to enjoy God's people, but we are not here just simply for the joy of the people. We are here to care for the household of God, to care for one another spiritually. And if your conversations are merely just conversations of friends, you're not getting what Jesus is saying. You are here to care for one another spiritually, to cultivate in each other godliness, to make sure that those who are ready to quit don't quit. When you see the drooping shoulders and the slouching Christian who's ready to collapse under the weight of trials, you are called to help. When you see someone who's ensnared in some of these habitual sins like pornography or anger, you are called to help. When you're like, I don't know who they are, you're called to pray. And maybe you should get to know them. So then you can help. Because Jesus is coming. As sure as the sun rises, Jesus will come. When I was young and playing football, I played at this kind of smaller Christian school. So the varsity and the, the, the JV played together. JV had some own game, some of their own games they could get playing time. There's this kid named Joel. Joel ended up being one of the best running backs the school ever saw, but his freshman year was not so good. He was skinny, he was small, undersized, and a running back. And playing varsity, because that's what all the freshmen did. And so, in the middle of a rainy, wet game where he had no hope of being on the field, we started just killing the other team. Fourth quarter comes around, and Coach Aikens, this large, overweight man who used to be a really, really good football player, turns around and like, Joel! You can't find Joel. It's like, finally, this little pipsqueak's going to get on the field. It's his day. You can't find him. Finally, the, like, the team kind of like separates like the Red Sea. And Joel's in the back, sitting on the ground, playing in the mud puddles, watching the water drain through little contours in the mud. It was not a good day for Joel. A little bit of shame, a little bit of embarrassment. And my guess is there's still today grown men who will bring up the story to Joel. Remember that time? Yeah. He was embarrassed. He was ashamed. He literally had mud all over his pants. Because instead of paying attention to what he should be doing, he was playing in the mud puddles. There are some Christians 
who are being warned this morning, Jesus is coming back. Stop playing in the mud. When Jesus calls your name, when he returns, is he going to find you diddling in the mud with water and nothing? Or is he going to find you ready? And whether or not Jesus returns in your lifetime, when you see him because of death or his return, you need to be ready. Faith in the return of the Son of God is meant to energize you. He's coming for you. He comes with reward for those who are faithful. He comes with judgment for those who are wicked and even though they claim to be Christian, are not as proof by the fact that they soak the church for everything it can give them and give little in return. Where are you at? Some of you, the pulse of your Christian faith is weak. And the energy the return of Christ gives you is minimal. And you're kind of looking at the mud thinking, yeah, it looks a little fun. Hear the warning of Christ. Here's something far better for you than the mud puddles of this life. In C.S. Lewis' book, The Screwtape Letters, if you've, ever, if you've ever read them, it's kind of a twist. Uh, the, the point is this uncle demon is telling his lackluster nephew, who is not doing a very good job of tempting and not doing a very good job of ruining this Christian, he's trying to tell him how to ruin Christians. And here's some of the stuff that, that C.S. Lewis says. He says, you see it's so hard for these creatures to persevere. The routine of adversity, the gradual decay of youthful loves and youthful hopes, the quiet despair of ever overcoming chronic temptations with which we have again and again defeated, the drabness with which we create in, that we create in their lives, and the inarticulate resentments which we teach them to respond to it with, all of this provides admirable opportunities for wearing out the soul by attrition. If, on the other hand, the middle years prove prosperous, our position is even stronger. Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he is finding his place in it. Well, really, it is finding its place in him. His increasing reputation, his widening circle of acquaintances, his sense of importance, the growing pressures of absorbing um, agreeable work build in him a sense of being really at home here in this earth which is just what we want. You will notice that the young are generally less unwilling to die than the middle-aged and the old. They're saying whether it's through just the constant battle to be holy or through success in the world, we can often grow weary and fail to live with passion and faith for our Lord. If you have begun to just plod you're growing tired, if you feel like giving up, if it feels like it's too expensive emotionally or spiritually to keep at it, remember this, Jesus is coming and he rewards richly. He will not disappoint you. It will be worth it when you see Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Thank you for the reminder that your son is coming with glory and power. And he shares glory with his people. 
He appoints them positions of leadership and honor in his kingdom. He rewards richly those who are faithful and diligent. Lord, help us to recognize temptation for what it is. It is an evil accusation that the son is a liar, that he's not coming soon. It is an accusation that it's not worth it, that your reward is cheap. It's a trinket. It's an accusation that your people are somehow not worth our time, despite the fact your son died to save them. Lord, help us to see our faithlessness, our fatigue, our weariness, and respond with faith that energizes us to trust, to labor hard, to respond with need for your grace because we are unwilling to take the easy path that requires no grace. Lord, help us to be willing to sacrifice ourselves for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, measure this in the quiet moments where we pray for them, where we meet with them without others knowing, where we encourage them with a simple word that challenges them to keep pressing on towards Jesus. Lord, help us to never forget that the Christian life was never meant to be a, rule, a list of rules of do's and don'ts, but a life that eagerly desires the presence of our Savior and finds in him our soul's satisfaction. Lord, for those who do not know who Jesus Christ is in the saving sense where he becomes king and redeemer, the one who forgives them for their sins, I pray that today you might awaken in them an awareness of their desperate need to be saved from the wrath that is coming on all those who do not have Jesus as Savior. Lord, I pray that you would cause our church to find the coming of your Son a motivation that strengthens our resolve to overcome the mundane boringness of life, that we would not grow weary, that we would continue to press on doing well, that we would be diligent, faith-filled, and wise, because the days are few and the time is short, and your Son will be here calling us to himself. Lord, help us to live for him. Help us to love him with a passion and a joy and a hope. And help us to encourage others. Even so, Lord, we know the day is quickly coming. And help us to be encouraged by that and faithful. Lord, save our little ones. If today is another day of patience, I ask that you'd help us to use it for eternity, that we would not presume that tomorrow will be another day of patience. Lord, help us to be eager to see people saved and quick to share the gospel of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.